Good morning, everyone. We're glad you're here. Uh, I am Pastor Scott, if you don't know that by now, and I am so glad to have you come and worship with us. Ushers, come forward, please. We'll share in our offering together. Uh, as Matt said, without question, ministry happens because of uh, your gifts and your giving, so thank you for that. Everything that happens in the church happens because the body of Christ together gives. And we give because we recognize that it's not ours, it's all God. It comes from his gracious hand. So thank you. Thank you for giving, uh, whether it's weekly or monthly, however you do that. Thank you for giving into the, uh, the ministry of our church. A couple of things for you. You just saw the, the uh, couple of promos for Night to Shine. We're so excited to bring Night to Shine back on campus. That's got a plus and a minus. The plus is we're on campus. We love to get people here in our church, in our building. We love for them to be here. One of the downsides of that is that it limits our size, limits our capacity. Now, what motivated that is there's only two places in town in February that can handle uh, the, the size of our event. And that would be uh, either here, uh, two other places would be the um, uh, hotel we've been at, the Doubletree. Uh, they were not available. And on top of that, they were over 30 plus thousand dollars to use that facility and provide food. And we have the fairgrounds. The fairgrounds also not available, but for them, it's upwards of 20 plus thousand without the food. Uh, and of course, you're trying to do decorations and those things. So we needed to bring it back and we feel good about that. The bad thing about it is we already are at capacity. We have already, we've, we have no other positions available as far as uh, spaces for participants. Within two weeks, all the registrations came and filled everything. We have 80 that we can take. Uh, that's our, our kind of our, our max number. We have a waiting list. So be in prayer for those who are not able to be, uh, to be at the event because we're trying to think of what to do, how to care for them and how to minister to them as well. Now with Night to Shine being here, we need literally hundreds of volunteers. If you've done it before, you know that for every person participant that comes, every person gets a buddy. So one-to-ones, that means that we have 80 participants or 85, whatever it might be, and we've got to have a buddy for each one and plus some. So I mean, 80 participants, probably 95 buddies. That's just the buddies. That's not all the other volunteers. So listen, if you're a buddy, be prepared to dance. And, and dance for two hours straight. It'll be a dancing marathon. Be prepared for that. If you're saying, oh, I can't do that, I got other jobs for you. So don't, not, don't stay away. So this morning, you can, sign up, you can sign up online, of course, but this morning and next couple of Sundays, out in the lobby, there's two, two tables set up. Two of our staff are there. That can, you can register right then as far as a place to volunteer. Um, working, with, working with youth or with those at risk, we have a background checks that are required. So you can go there this morning and and sign the form and have it notarized right there. They can do the background check, get that all taken care of. So participate. I love the music that, that is, that, the song that was written and used for this night, Our Night to Shine. I just want you to know it's our night to shine. Any one of you who've ever participated in Night to Shine knows that when you walk away, we have been the recipients uh, of what's been given to us, far more than we have given. Hopefully you'll participate in that. A um, couple other last items. Uh, our last day, today and tomorrow for these boxes, there's about 50 of these that have already been assembled. They're empty, but 50 of them out there, hopefully you'll take them yet even today. We love to not have to break these back down. 50 of them, take them, go fill them this afternoon, bring them back later tonight, bring them tomorrow. Uh, and thank you for participating in that. But we'd like to not have to break those back down. So if you wouldn't help, help, help us with that, that'd be great. Last thing, this afternoon, three o'clock, we have a class called Envision. It's about our church. It's about who we are, our history, where we're going, uh, and how we, how we operate, our strategic plan, those kind of things. If you're new to the church, seeking membership, this is a, a class to be at. Uh, I lead it. It's about three and a half, four hours. We have a break in there for dinner. Uh, three and a half, four hours with me. What's better than that? Not football. Um, that, this, is, this is like a dream come true for you. So come and be a part of that. If you didn't sign up, you can still do that online. If, if, if you forget about signing up, just come be a part of the night. It's actually a pretty fun time together. So I look forward to seeing you there. Let's get into the word this morning, as this morning we're going to wrap up our series that we have called One Question. Now to get us started this morning on, the, on a theme for today, I need to give you a bit of introduction. Now I actually have two introductions. I've got one introduction which kind of incorporates the whole series, and then in the middle of that one I'll, I'll switch to a specific introduction for a thought for today. So just stick with me here as we walk through all this. Picture in your mind, if you would, a blank canvas. 
I just happen to have one here. I covered it, not because it's hiding some great piece of art, but because quite honestly, with the camera and lights, it would just glare. So we covered it up. And it didn't hurt the fact that you wondered what was underneath there. I know you were thinking it was going to be a portrait of me, but you're wrong. It's just blank canvas. So here's what I want you to picture. So you have a, you have a child, you have children, and your child's two years old. And at two years old, you've got this blank canvas, and you take that canvas, you take it down to the basement, you put it on the floor, put it on an easel. You got your two-year-old, two-year-old there. You have cans of paint, all the paint, all the brushes, all of the pencils, everything you can need. And you say to that two-year-old, "Here you go, sweetheart. Make us a masterpiece." And then you leave. And you say, you know, come up when you're done, or I'll come down in an hour and see what you create us a masterpiece. So question for you, when you find the finished artwork, is it a masterpiece? Now listen, you parents, no, it's not. You know, so I've seen some of the stuff you call, uh, no, it's not. It's not, it's not artwork. I mean, it, it's art, but it's not a masterpiece. In fact, two years old, you'll probably find more paint on the floor, on the walls, and on the canvas. That's the way that it goes. But it's not a masterpiece. Now, let's just say for just a moment, it's not a work of art, but let's just say for the moment that you go through this entire exercise every year of their lives while they're still home. So you do it at three-year-old, five, six, seven, up through 20, 21, 22, whatever it might be. Uh, Every year, you give them a fresh blank canvas and let them paint. Now, I would expect, and you would expect, that over the course of those years, you would expect to see some improvement. But let's be honest, for some of us, and I'll be one of those, you look at my two-year-old picture, my 20-year-old picture, my 40 and 60, not much improvement. Not an artist. Never have been, never will be. But it's fair to say that you'd expect a little improvement along the way. Now, here's the problem, and here's the point of the beginning point for today's lesson. Here's the first part of the introduction. The problem is this. The blank canvas is the picture of our lives. So what I want you to see through the whole sermon this morning, you're looking at this canvas, and this canvas represents the the, the portrait of our lives. It represents us. You are creating the story of your life on this blank canvas. The problem is, though, it's not blank anymore. It's not blank. There is no yearly redos. There's no yearly new blank canvas to start every year. It doesn't work that way. The picture, here's the problem. The picture that you're trying to paint today has to be painted on top of what you painted yesterday. And of course, on top of that, you've got to paint yesterday's picture on that which was done the day before. So today, while I'm trying to paint my portrait of life, everything is being painted on that which was done yesterday, in the previous week, in the previous month, in the previous year, in the previous years. Because you don't get the opportunity for the, the new blank canvas, which means when I'm painting the picture, I've got to continually painting over that which has already been painted. And be honest, some of the painting, some of the artwork I'm not real happy with. Some of the pictures I've painted in my portrait of life, I'm not so thrilled with. But that's the problem. You are essentially creating a picture of art, a piece of art, and will entitle it my life. Now, here's how it works. You started it, and I'll be generous here. You started this work of art about 12 or 15 years old. Admittedly, you probably started sooner than that, but just for the sake of argument, at 12 or 15, we gave you your first blank slate, your blank canvas, and you started to paint it. You've been, going, you've, been, you've been going full out at painting this canvas. You're going to fill up the whole canvas with your whole life. And then one day, like all of us, you're going to die. You're going to pass on. Some of you sooner than later. Some of you prematurely. Some of you will last a long time. But here's what I know. The death rate is still at 100%. Everyone's going to have their moment. And then what's going to happen, there'll be a funeral. And at your funeral, they're going to talk about you. They're going to talk about your work of art. They're going to talk about your life. They're going to talk about all of those things that you put out there on your canvas. It's all going to be on display. Now, just a side note. Here's the great thing about funerals. At funerals, they don't talk about all parts of your life, only the good parts. See, that's the beautiful part of this, is that that when it comes to your funeral, for some of us, they're not going to talk about 50% of our lives. For some, they won't talk just about 25%. For others, 85%. They're not going to talk about every part. They're just going to talk about, they're just going to look at the best of those parts. Your life is on display. And then the funeral will be over. There'll be a light lunch after. And in about two generations, no one will even remember your name or that you existed. So thank you for coming today. I hope you're encouraged. (laughs) I hope you can use this in your life. 
Amen. Go in peace. All right. Now, so here's the point. Right now, all of us are in the process of creating our canvas. And you don't get do-overs. Doesn't happen. Nope. Our canvas, we get one. And your whole life goes on it. Now, that's why this series... That's why we're talking about the question, what's the wise thing for me to do? Because when you answer the question, what's the wise thing, when you make your decisions of life, you're actually painting the canvas. Every single decision you make is being painted into the canvas. So the question's an important one because the question helps you get the picture right. It helps get the, uh, the piece of work, the artwork done correctly. So we ask that question. And a starting place, I want you to hear this, to make wise decisions. Now, here's where you have to start honing in a little bit with me. So get this now. To make wise decisions in any arena of life requires you to have an understanding and even a submission to the principles and rules of that arena of life. So the first introduction is this canvas idea in general. Now we're going to be a little more specific. So to make wise decisions in any, any specific arena of life, you have to know the rules and you have to submit to the rules of that particular arena. Now we actually know this, we actually do this all the time, though often we don't think about it. So let me kind of build it out for you. If you're a baseball coach, if you're a basketball coach, if you're a soccer coach, to be a great coach, you need to make wise decisions. To make wise decisions, you have to know and you have to abide by the principles and the rules of each individual sport. If you're a basketball coach and you don't know the rules of basketball, but you know soccer really isn't going to help you. So you get that. To be a good coach, you have to know the rules and the principles of that arena of life in which you operate. If you don't know them, not only will you not make wise decisions, but it's going to be a very long season for you. In life, if you're not willing to make wise decisions based upon the principles and the rules of life, it's going to be a very long life for you. An architect, an electrical engineer, a plumber, the same thing applies. That in each of them in their arena, they have to know and submit to the rules of the trade for them to be successful. You got it. For a CPA, you, you numbers people, you have to know the rules. Tax time comes, you really have to know the rules. The rules and principles in order for you to be successful, in order for you to get it right, you have to know and operate inside the framework of those rules. Pilots, doctors, same thing. Listen, I don't want my friend the pilot to do my open heart surgery. In the same way, I don't want my surgeon flying my airplane. Really simple. I want them to know the rules of their trade and do it really well inside their area in their arena and then let someone else do it in their arena. So immediately you begin to get this picture. And friends, we apply this every day in our lives so you don't think about it. When you leave here today, you're going to get into your car. And when you drive, you are going to make countless decisions on how you drive based upon knowing and submitting to the rules of the road. Some of us know and submit to those rules better than others. <laughs> I had a moment this week driving down the road. There was no car anywhere in front of me that I could see. There was no car behind me as far as I could see. And there was one car waiting to pull out of a driveway. That car waited till I was within 30, 40 feet pulls out in front of me in a 40-mile-an-hour road and goes 20 to 25 miles an hour. They continue to go 20 to 25 miles an hour. As long as I'm on this road and I can't pass, they continue to go at this speed. At this point, I'm getting ready to pass on double yellow line. I'm getting ready to give them a polite, you know, Christian toot in the phone, you know, the, the, the polite one. You know, not the, not the pagan stuff you people do, but the nice, you know. I'm getting ready, and then it dawns on me, sure shooting, I'm going to do something, I'm going to pass them, and I'm going to look, and they're going to say, oh, there's the pastor of our church. <laughs> so God, in his grace, kept my hand off of the horn. I didn't do anything. I saw who the person was, and I took a vow that if I see them here this morning, we will talk. But there are rules that govern how we drive. And I'll say this just kind of jokingly, but I've oftentimes through life, I look at all of the cars on the road. Isn't it amazing there aren't more accidents? And the reason there aren't is because the drivers, for the most part, know and abide by the principle. So you get it. Now let's apply this principle to life in general. Why is life decisions require 
require a knowledge and a submission to the principles and the rules that govern our lives. And where do you think you find those rules and principles? God's word. Wise decisions start the very basis of God's word. Because it's in God's word, it's through him that we understand the rules that govern life and then how we are to abide by them. But here's the question, how is it that God's word is the key to wise living? How is it there are so many Bibles in the world? In fact, it's the number one bestseller of all times. How is it that virtually everyone here has a Bible? And if you don't have one, you can get one free. If you don't have a Bible, stop by our Welcome Center this morning. Take 10 with you if you like. But how is it that we live in a culture where virtually everyone has a Bible and everyone absolutely has access to a Bible? And how is it that we have all of that knowledge in front of us and right with us and we still make so many bad, unwise decisions? See, the issue is this, because though the question of what's the wise thing to do will take you right up to the very edge of doing the right thing, And asking yourself the question, what's the wise thing for me to do, will take you right up to the precipice of wisdom. You still have to do the wise thing. You see, friends, some of us consider ourselves really wise, but we don't live as wise people. Because wisdom is not what you know. Wisdom is what you apply So the whole lot of us will say, I'm incredibly wise. I can see this and I can see that and I can see that. But wisdom shows up in how you then live your life. Knowing does not make you wise. Doing makes you wise. So Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived of all the history, tells us that in order to make wise decisions, you need to not only know the wise thing, but you need to submit to the one who actually established all the laws and principles. Here's how Solomon says it, Proverbs chapter 9. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through wisdom your days will be many, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you're a mocker, you alone will suffer. Now, this verse and this concept is so misunderstood by people. And in fact, it's quoted quite often by people who are anti-God because it starts by saying the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And some will say, you see there, God's a bully. See, God wants us to be afraid of him. Does not say that. But there's all sorts of people who have this view and try to paint this picture that somehow God is this ogre, this divine ogre, and he wants us to live our whole lives in fear of him and being afraid of him. That is not what it says at all. Quite honestly, now listen, in your life, if you find yourself asking, what's the wise thing to do? If throughout this series you have found yourself thinking, I really like that question. If at certain times you found yourself saying along the way, I wish I, I, wish I would have asked that question when I was 20 years old. I wish I would have asked that question before I made that decision. I wish I would have asked that question before my first, my second, or my third marriage. I wish I would have asked that question before I took that job. I wish I would have asked that question before I left that job, before I moved into that new house. I wish I would have asked that question before I start drinking. I wish I would have asked that question, what's the wise thing to do before I start taking those pills? I, I really want to make the wise decision. If you're there, then the word found in this verse is important because Solomon says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. If you really want to make wise decisions, it starts, wisdom starts with the fear of the Lord. Not living afraid of God. So what does fear mean? It's real simple. Fear actually means this, that I have an acknowledgement, I have a reverence of God that brings me to obedience. It means to live in awe of God. To understand who he is, to understand how he operates, and to do so in such a way that when I realize there's a God, it brings me to the place of wanting to obey The fear of the Lord means to see him with such awe that it brings me to a place of submission. Kind of a side note from parents in in a parenting realm as well. I see so many parents that miss this same concept because one of the keys to children being successful as children is fear of the parent. 
And immediately you say that today, people go, oh, you're, you're, you're advocating, you want them to live in fear of their parents or afraid of them? No, no, no. I want them to have such a, a reverence for me as the parent that it brings them to obedience. And I see a lot of parents that don't establish that relationship. And so accordingly, they're shouting at their kids or, you know, a hundred times to do something, they don't do it. The kids treat them with no respect because they don't have that fear of the parent, which means this place of reverence of who they are that then pulls me to that place of obedience. A recognition of authority that makes me say, I want to obey. Now, what does this fear of the Lord look like in our lives? It's a fair question. I can tell you, fear the Lord, and you could say, okay, I do. What's it look like? Here's what it looks like. It looks like waking up in the morning and saying this, okay, God, today, you are God, and I'm not. You're, a, you're good at being God, and I'm horrible at being God. So, you're God. I follow you. It means this, God, you know more about my life than I do. So I'm going to follow you. You know more about relationships than I know about relationships. God, you know more about marriage than I know about marriage. You know more about dating than I know about dating. God, you know more about finances than I know about finances. You know more about being single than I know about being single. You know about right decisions better than I know. You know more about parenting, God, than I will ever begin to know as a parent. So God, I'm going to go with you. See, that's what it means to live in the fear of God. To have such a view of God that you recognize he knows better, period. And so God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to follow your agenda. I'm going to go with your decisions. Now listen to this. There are going to be times where we're going to say this to God. God, there are things that you're asking me to do that I completely understand. You say do this and I understand it. That's great. That's fantastic. That's easy. But God, there are certain things that you ask of me that I got to tell you I don't understand. There are certain things that you ask me to do which, which seem hard and don't, doesn't make sense to me. You see, when you lead me down a path that I don't understand, it makes no sense, and I, and I don't want to do that. Other times, I find myself, yeah, God, I got it. Sure, absolutely, that makes perfect sense. But here's what it means to live in the fear of God. Because let's be honest, there are times when God will ask you to do something that it doesn't seem to make sense to you as to why he wants you to do that. And I'm going to come back and talk about that in a moment. But the fear of God means whether it's a moment in your life where you go, ah, I immediately see why, or a time when you go, hmm, makes no sense to me at all. The fear of God says this, either way, I follow you. Either way, I'm going to do it your way because you are God. Now, here's my question for you. First application point. Any area of your life where you know that God has said to you or is saying to you, I want you to do this. I want you to act like this. I want you to behave like this. I want you to give like this. And you say, no. Any area in your life where you know that God has spoken in a particular direction and you kind of say, no, I, I know better. God says to you, I want you to forgive them and let it go. And you go, no, don't think so. Well, let me pause for a small moment. Let me be real clear here. My experience has been in the Christian life that few of us just openly, defiantly say no to God. Now, there are times when we will, without question, but for most of us, we're not defiantly with God, say, absolutely not, I will not. Usually not. See, what we do really, really well is we find qualifying factors that allow us to say no to God and still feel good about our disobedience. It goes like this. I want you to forgive them and let it go. No, I wouldn't. If they would just say they're sorry, then I would. You see how we slip that in there? Now that sounds reasonable. If they say they're sorry, then I'll apologize. And that is putting in a qualification for your obedience or your disobedience when God says, hey, you're saying sorry, is not, you're forgiving them, it's not based on their sorrow. I want you to forgive them. Well, no, I, I, when they say they're sorry, I'm all in. And in the meantime, we feel really good about our walk with God because we've said yes, but we've said yes with our condition. God says, I want you to give. I want you to take a portion of your paycheck, uh, 10%, and I want, to, I want you to give it to me every week or every month. However, I want you to give regularly. And we go, I would, but do you understand what I'm up against right now? 
You know, the financial you know, hardship, I, my back's against the wall here. But as soon as I get some daylight, I'm all in. I want you to go and befriend them. I want you to go and be a friend to them. But God, I would, but they're so annoying. You know, if they, if they could stop their annoying habits, maybe. Thankfully, that's not the qualification for friendship, or most of us wouldn't have any friends here, right? Or it kind of goes like this. I want you to invite them for dinner. And I want you to build a relationship with them. And I want you to invite them to Christmas Eve. Well, I would, but they're going to say no. I mean, I would, but they're going to say no. And they don't have an interest in spiritual stuff anyway. So, uh, you know, but if they show a sign, then I'm all in. Fear of the Lord is a reverence of him that leads to obedience. And back to my question. Is there any area in your life or areas where God has clearly said, you know, this is what you're doing, and you've had a reason why not, because it makes better sense to you than it does to him. Any area there? Just think about that. Have you ever, maybe you're a new person to church, never given your life to Jesus Christ? Ever thought you should, but maybe hesitate because, well, maybe I know better. Well, just ponder that for a moment. Now, look at the second part of this verse. It says in verse 10, the same, second part of verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So the fear of God's be given, but then this knowledge piece of, of who God is brings understanding. Understanding this verse is one of the most critical things that you can do if you want to have an incredible walk with God. Understanding what this last part means. Understand and apply this last part of the verse, and I guarantee your life will never be the same. Don't learn about this verse. Don't apply this verse. I guarantee your life will be the same. Regret after regret after regret. Redo after redo. Wishing for a new canvas and wish you'd ask that question. So let's kind of break this down. Let me explain it this way. Um, every single day, for those of you who are, believe in a God, believe that all this is created. Admittedly, if your take really is everything we see here is just by accident, just the process of an evolutionary accident, I still would say even to that, and where did all the stuff come from that came together for the evolutionary process to start? I mean, somewhere it had to come from somewhere. And so without that argument now, let's say anyone here who says, okay, I believe that all this was created, if you believe that this, everything we see around us is created, every single day, we use and leverage the way that God created this world, and we do that in our lives to make our lives better, and yet we resist submitting to the guy who created all this. We'll use his creation to our advantage, but we won't submit ourselves to the creator of everything. I'm explaining it all like this. And so let me explain it. Every day, we use and we leverage things in our lives, the laws of gravity, Every single day, we practice the law of gravity. You know, the apple falls from the tree. And you say, well, how do I do that? By standing where you're at or sitting where you're at right now. You realize right now we're upside down. You realize right now, if you're sitting here on the earth, we're upside down. Now, if you think about that too long, you're really going to put yourself into a tailspin. <laughs> because we really aren't, because there is no upside down or upside right in the context of the space. But for the sake of argument, you're upside down right now. And you're still sitting in your chair. You haven't, you know, fallen on your head to the ceiling. So every day, we have this principle of gravity that we see around us every day. We leverage that to our good. Um, God did that. God was the creator of gravity. Aerodynamics. An airplane can fly. You realize that we get onto an airplane that's full of hundreds of thousands of pounds of weight. And they close the door and they juice that thing up and it takes off and it flies. And we don't think twice about it. All we think about is I hate the fact they cut out the meal service. I got to buy food down. Then they give me these little weenie pretzels. I hate that. <laughs> You're not thinking about hundreds of thousands of pounds up in the air. You're just thinking about other things of life. Why? Well, because you've come to the place where you understand aerodynamics. Understand enough to know that you trust it and you leverage it to your benefit. Some of you will leverage it this week for Thanksgiving. You go see family not thinking twice about the fact that that plane will work. Every day, we use the physical phenomena associated with the presence of motion, of matter, when under an electrical charge. You know, what does that mean? It means I'm going home today and I'm going to turn on my plasma TV and watch football. Electricity. And when I turn it on, everything in that thing is working and moving and in milliseconds and bouncing all around. And all I care about is I got a crystal clear picture of my Minnesota Vikings playing football. That's what I care about. Every day you do that. There's a whole principle of the laws of thermodynamics that are at work. And we leverage that every single day. Now, side note for you real quick. If you're a non-believer, 
Not sure you believe the God thing anyway. Um, even if you are a believer, I should say. Just so you know, there's no conflict between faith and science. See, people try to create conflict. And we have some Christians that have said, hey, either you've got to be all in, all faith, no science, or if you're all science, you don't have any faith. Just so you know that that's a bad dichotomy to create because it doesn't work that way. Both work really, really, really well together. Don't forget a scientist. A true scientist is just out to find out how things work. That's it. They're out to find out how things work. So they, they, they get at this thing and they want to look at it and they want to take a look at it and say, well, what makes it figure out how it all works? Um, please know that God created nature and the scientist. So when you look at something and figure out how it works, just so you know, there's still a creator behind all of it. So if someone can sit down with me and listen, if you're one of these people that want to call me aside today and explain this next statement, I'm going to say, don't. But let's say you're, you're you know, electrical engineer and you're in the, you know, the whole how the plasma works and you want to come explain to me how it works for my TV. I don't care. <laughs> but let me say this to you. When someone figures out how a plasma TV works and can explain it, you know, front to back, the fact that I can watch TV, it doesn't dismiss the fact that someone still created it just because you can explain to me exactly how it works. It doesn't take any mystery out of the fact that it still had to be created. All the parts still had to be created. Somebody had to be smart enough to put them all together. And you keep going back far enough, somewhere somebody created all the stuff that makes the parts. You see, it doesn't work against faith and science, not against each other. Just because you can figure out how something works doesn't take away that someone, someone still created all the parts that makes it work. There's no conflict. Science is a group of people in different disciplines who over time discover how God made it all work. Christians, every time science makes a new discovery on how things work, our response ought to be, oh, that's how God did it. See, it doesn't work in conflict with one another, so we got to get past it. Now, here's the point. Every day... We use and leverage, the, the, for, and for our benefit, the way that God made this world to work. Every day, we're using the rules of this world to make our lives better. So why then do you refuse to submit your life to the one who made all of this world and made it work? See, every day I take advantage of what he created to my, to my advantage. I, I take advantage of all that he did to make my life better. Then why is it that I refuse to give my actual life to him, the one who created all of that? And of course, the answer will be, well, it's my life. It's my life, and I know better. My life is very complex, Scott. Not a simple thing running my life. I got it, but I got news for you. The laws of thermodynamics and the laws of gravity far more complex than your life, no matter what it is you're going through. He's got this. God's got it. You see, God is so consistent in what he does that we see that there's a rhyme and a reason to every single thing. If we look at, stand back and look at this world, God is so consistent. You go to the doctor. Doctor, first thing they do is they check your pulse. Isn't it interesting that they know to check your pulse right here or right here as the two primary spots? But isn't it amazing that when you get there, they don't have to go searching, starting with your ankle, looking at your toes, looking, hey, we're just looking for your pulse doesn't work that way. Why? Because, see, God is kind of consistent in that way that he made everyone the same and you can find the pulse in the right place. It's why planes can fly and take off from any airport, not just select airports where there happens to be gravity in place because God's consistent that way. It's why this afternoon a punter in, in a football game or a quarterback is able to pass the ball or kick the ball perfectly because gravity is constant. You see, God is consistent in the way that he created the world to work. And every single day, we use that consistency in our lives. So why then wouldn't we just stop and say, if I'm going to use the laws of this world to my advantage and God created them, why won't I just give my life to him, the one who created it all in the first place? See, here's what I think Solomon had in mind. Why would you not surrender your life to the God who created all of the things that you use every day for your benefit? Why would you not trust him to get it right for your life when he has demonstrated that he gets it right in every single other thing? Now, there is an answer. For some of us, we just can't have a God that would tell us how to live because we're going to live our own way, period. I can't change that for you. 
But I would suggest that if you look at a God who's got it right across the board, he'll get it right in your life as well. So let me just for a moment here, real quickly, let me rewrite this verse just a little bit different. So here's the verse as we have in, that we have in our text. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. I would rewrite it like this. Living in the presence of God, which leads to obedience, is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of how the Holy One works throughout all of creation gives you the understanding that you need to say, God, I trust you with my life. See, that's the piece you have to understand. This idea of understanding the holiness of God brings, under, brings understanding to your life. When you acknowledge how God works everywhere else, it gives you to a place of understanding where you can say, you know what? The God that allowed me to take that plane ride and have it go up and down like it's supposed to, I can trust him with my life's up and downs as well. The God who put it all together, I can trust. Friends, here's the bottom line. To make truly wise decisions requires submission to the author and to the creator of life. We do this every day in so many areas. Why not? Why not with your life? Let me look at one more verse. Then we'll wrap up. So remember who Solomon's uh, dad was, King David. And uh, interestingly enough, one of the truths that Solomon gives us with wisdom actually comes directly from his dad. So his dad taught him well. And this note, Psalm 111, verse 10, here's what it says. David, David writing this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Doesn't that sound familiar? All who follow his precepts have good understanding. To him belongs eternal praise. There it is again. David has been teaching his son this truth. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But then David adds one little piece to it that's kind of helpful for us to see because he adds in there, and all who follow his precepts, they're the ones who have good understanding. So precepts, you know, that's God's teaching. That'd be the principles. That is God saying, I want you to go do this. God instructs us to do something. Those are the precepts of God. And look what he says. He says, those who follow God's teachings, his precepts, his commands, those who do that, those are the ones that have understanding. It means this. You don't get the understanding first. You get it after you obey. You don't get it before you obey. It means sometimes you have to say yes to God before you know how it's going to turn out. And that's not easy for us because we're the people that want to say to God, God says, I want you to do this. You say, well, explain yourself. God says, no, I'm sorry. I don't need to explain myself. I need you to do this. I have your best interest in mind. Weeks ago, we talked about the fact that if you look away the choices that we have made in our lives, it proves that we do not have our best interest at heart. Many, many times we think we do and we do not. However, the proof is there. God always has your best interest in heart. So God says, I want you to do this. We go, oh, I want to understand why first. God says, nope, you do it. You see, I want to understand it first. Nope, God says, not always. And just so you know, an understanding is never the qualification for your yes. Understanding is not meant to be the qualification. Well, if I understand it, then I'll say yes. No, our qualification is supposed to be God is God and I trust him. The launch pad, folks, for wisdom is your unhesitant yes to God. That's the launch pad. God I will do whatever you ask me to do. The beginning of wisdom is saying yes to the only wise one. Now, hopefully through the series, and let's wrap it up here today. Hopefully through the series, you've been tracking with me. Hopefully along the way, there's been some interest where you think about that question, you find yourself saying, oh, that's a good question. Oh, I wish I would have asked that when I was 18 or 20 or 22 or I wish I would have asked that question before this moment in my life, whatever it might be, hunger for wisdom. Hopefully there's been that wanting to do the, way, right, the wise thing. And even right now, hopefully, there's a sense that you would have that would say, I really, I really want to do the wise thing. And if you're a parent, wouldn't it be one of your dreams to think that your children will grow up and with every decision, they'll stop and say, Lord, What's the wise thing for me to do? I mean, that's what we want for our kids. That's what I want for me. So here's the question for the last time. I'm not going to have you repeat it after me, though I thought about that, but I'm not much into everybody repeating after me. But I would love for you to say it in your head at least. The questions we started with, and it goes like this. Lord, 
in light of my past experience, in light of my current circumstances, and in light of my future hopes and dreams, Lord, what's the wise thing for me to do? I'm going to have the team come out. We're going to end it with a song here in just a moment. But uh, as we do that, I want to give you a little perspective. North Avenue is going to break off here and close on their own differently. But uh, in my head, I love the picture of the canvas. I mean, I love that idea of painting my life picture. But here's the problem. I know that there are times in my life on my canvas where it is a train wreck of, of art, Right? I mean, it looks like a two-year-old dumped the can on it and stepped on it. There are times when my piece of art is just a mess. And the problem is you can't just ignore it and pretend it's not there. And the problem, again, with the top of that is you don't get the clean slate. Now, please know when you say yes to Jesus Christ, sin's forgiven and you got this new beginning, but we all understand that it doesn't take away consequences of how I live. The, the painting's still there. So what does God do with all of those mistakes? And specifically, if I give my life to him, what's he do with this painting? Um, the illustration I'm going to give could be the worst illustration I ever used in my life, or more odd, most odd. So I'm, watching, I'm scanning television the other night, late night, and there's a show that I've seen a couple of times. I haven't watched it regularly, but it's still on. Anyone have seen the show Bad Ink? No. Oh, okay, good. So... <clears throat> thinking maybe you'd work with me a little, but nothing here. So Bad Ink, the whole premise of the show is these two guys are tattoo artists. They're, two, they're tattoo artists, and they're incredible. They're incredible artists, and they live in Vegas. Their shop is in Vegas, which, of course, where else would you have a shop that specializes in fixing bad tattoos? The whole premise of the whole show is all they do is help people who, like many people in Vegas, wake up the next morning and go, what did I do? What did I do? If only I could ask the wise question then. If only I could start over. These two guys specialize in taking the most hideous, horrible, sometimes, I mean, pornographic tattoos that people look at them now and they go, what was I thinking? And these guys have this ability to go in and take it and make just incredible, incredibly beautiful tattoos. I watch that and I go, man, is that the right picture for us? Well, first of all, Vegas. What a perfect picture of our lives. The place where anything goes. The truth of it is, in our lives, anything goes. We do what we want, we want to do. The place of, the perfect place where people go, man, if only I could do it over. And God's the one who comes in and says, yeah, I, I can actually work with your painting. See, the, diff the tattoo is you got to create something totally new and different because the old one is stuck there. It's not coming off. But the beautiful thing about the paint on our canvas is the paint never dries, which means if you hand over the brush that you got. So get your brush out for a moment. I know everybody walked in looking at the people at the ushers going, what do I got this for? All right. Yeah, thank you. I'll tell you what you got this for. You're going to take it home with you, so don't try to give it back. But you got a paintbrush purely as a symbol for you. Because you see, I am not a good artist. And the truth of it is, neither are you. Not when it comes to the canvas of your life. We have some great moments. The truth of it is, we got a lot of mistakes and errors. And we got this brush. And you see, the day we start this life, this brush is put in our hands and we get to go paint the canvas. Now, please know, I'm not giving you all paint to come paint this canvas. It would look like the two-year-old in the basement. We're not doing that. But the picture I want you to see is all along the way, I have a choice. I can hold the brush like this, which means I'm the painter. Or if you've ever been to an art class, remember art, art class in the school? Or you can take the brush and go like this which says to the artist, here, you take the brush. God, you take the brush. I got a mess there. Can you clean this up? And I would love for you to paint a new picture. And he'll do it. Team's gonna lead us in this song. I'd ask you to do two things. One, if you're never giving your life to Jesus Christ, 
Would you consider that? That's one of the wisest decisions you can make to say, I will follow the one who created all this. I'll follow you. For others of you, you, have, you are a follower of Jesus. You've given your life to him. But you know, you know that you're bound and determined to paint your own picture. And would you be willing in some area of your life where you've been battling to say, you take it, God. You paint it. Team, you lead us. You stay seated. And I'm going to come up and ask you to stay seated still, and then I'll close. Then we'll go home. wouldn't mind just bowing your heads, closing your eyes for a moment, prefer you not be looking around. But perhaps in that song during that time, maybe some of you for the first time made a decision to give your life to Jesus Christ, to say, Lord, I want to follow you. I'm not even sure all that that means, but I follow you. For some of you, there have been some area in your life you've been battling. I guarantee you, he knows your marriage better than you. I guarantee you, he knows your finances better than you. He knows your fears better than you know them. So in that last song, there may be an area for some of you where you were willing to say, God, I'm going to hand you the paintbrush. If you've made a decision, just in the quietness of the last moment or two, I'm going to end in prayer, but I'd love to pray over you. If, they've made, if you've made a decision with God in the past minutes or so of this song, or maybe this past series, just stand wherever you're at. No one else looking around. It's between you and God. You just stand this moment. I'm going to offer prayer for you and pray over you. If you've made a decision, given your paintbrush over to God in your heart and said, Lord, this is the area right here where I, I need you. I surrender to you. I'm going to give you a moment just to reflect on that. You stand, if you would. 
Just stay standing. No one else is looking around. This is your moment with you and God. And I'll offer a closing prayer here in just a moment. Lord Jesus, far more important than me seeing anyone standing, you see beyond their posture, you see right into their heart. You see the fears, you see the anxieties, you see the regret, you see the scars, you see the brokenness. And in this moment, you see them with their paintbrush of life handing it to you. So say, Lord, I want you to make a new picture for me and you'll do it so I pray that in this moment whether they're standing for the first time because they decided to give their life to you if they're a veteran follower of Jesus they've got an area in their life an area of forgiveness of dealing with some issue in their life some place where they've battled and battled and they messed up the picture horribly and they would say Lord I'm going to give it over to you I pray this morning they would have that sense of blessing that comes from obedience like children, when they do the right thing, they want their mother, their father to see, look what I did. This morning, may each of these standing have this awareness that their heavenly father sees them. And not just sees them and is proud of them for taking these steps, but they also may they sense you at work in their lives. Taking the ink, which is not dry yet, and making it into an incredibly work of art with your master hand. Give them that encouragement today that they can trust you with their lives and bless them. I'll ask everyone to stand, please, and let me offer a closing. And Father, we end our service. I am thankful in these past weeks of our series, a number of folks that have said along the way, man, God's been working on this area or that area. I wish I would have, and I see God's grace at work. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Your word is true. As we leave this place today and as you dismiss us, dismiss us in your grace. May we take these little paintbrushes. Lord, may we put them in a cup on our desk, maybe in the drawer of our desk at work. Maybe they're right in front. Maybe it's on the kitchen counter. Some place where we'll see it regularly. And in any of those moments of major decisions, good ones we've yet to make, bad ones we've yet to make, great ones we've made, horrible ones we've made that we might see this little brush and be reminded we hand the brush over to you. You are the master artist. Dismiss us today in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.